So, mm-hmm. let yourself please sit in a way that's comfortable and easy. And this evening, picking up from uh, last week's discussion, talk, which was on the practice of mindfulness of the body and heart and the feelings of the mind and the nature of our experience, the quality of listening, I said that we would extend that same simple principle from the awareness that comes in meditation as we sit and return to ourselves or listen in a deep way, extend that to the world of our environment and our community and talk about that a bit. And the way that one applies this quality of sati, or presence, or mindfulness that we establish with our breath, and our heart, and our mind in sitting. There's a second word in Sanskrit that comes with sati called sampajanya, which is translated sometimes as clear comprehension, or wise response, or... uh, awareness of the suitabilities of our actions or our purpose. And what it means is that as we sit and become still, our mind quiets, our heart softens, we become more connected with ourselves and our inner experience as things come to us, that then it's possible to meet the world with less reaction and instead with a sense of responsiveness, rather than an immediate reaction, how, what we like and don't like, there's a, a spaciousness, a softness, softening inside that allows us to meet the changes of life from that open heart. How to respond to what comes to us in this life? Over the years, anybody who pays attention in spiritual practice or not discovers that it's not linear. Life doesn't kind of progress from one thing to another, but it seems to be waves and cycles and spirals. To everything there is a season, a season to, and a purpose, a time to be born and a time to die and a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to build up and break down, a time to weep and a time to laugh. And we don't get to choose those times, for the most part, as much as receive them. So in a way, to bring the quality of presence from the heart and the mind into our life, what's asked (coughs) is to move gracefully with the currents that the river takes us into. Ramdas, years ago in Be Here Now, wrote, spiritual practice is like a roller coaster. Each new high is usually followed by a new low. (laughs) Understanding this makes it a bit easier as you ride through the phases. There is, in addition to the up and down cycle, an in and out cycle. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work, and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and get on with it. And then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these cycles are one's practice, for what happens to you in the marketplace helps to deepen your meditation, and what happens in your meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace 
with compassion instead of attachment. You know, this person um, that had come to a number of retreats over the years decided that he was really going to become a uh, an enlightened meditator or something like that, and he decided that he would um, go to the monasteries of Asia and train. First, he saved all his money for a couple years. He was going to do a three-month, two or three-month retreat in America, in our center in Massachusetts, and then go off to India for a few years and get enlightened or whatever his idea was. And he came to the three-month retreat, and about two weeks into the three-month retreat, he got an emergency phone call that his father had had a major heart attack and survived it, but was impaired some and was down in Florida. And could he please come home and help with his dad? So he went back there to help with his dad. Um, and he actually ended up staying for two years until his father died. His father got sicker in some ways and finally died. And for a while he was really sorry because he'd saved all his money and he was going to go to India. Um, you know, work for Mother Teresa and sit in some temple and meditate and things like that. But then at some point it dawned on him that being in Florida was a little bit like being in Benares where all the people in India go to die. You know, it's the Benares of America in a way. <laughs> and he just had to kind of shift his consciousness a little bit. And that he was in India basically, right? And that all the teachings that he might have gotten from the gurus of the ashrams and the temples were there for him in caring for his father. So in this, what we're asked to do is learn that spiritual life isn't what happens when we meditate, although we need it desperately. I mean, my daughter, my teenage daughter will say to me sometimes, Dad, I think it's time for you to go and meditate, right? You know, so we do need it. But our modern life tends to divide things, you know, and try to plan them and so forth, and it just doesn't work according to plans. This from a friend of mine, whose computer printed out a number of haiku as its way of speaking back to her, at, particularly at difficult times. Little poetic verses instead of those horrible error messages. One haiku, the computer said, a file that big? It might have been very useful, but now it's gone. <laughs> First snow, then silence. This thousand-dollar screen dies so beautifully. <laughs> Yesterday it worked. Today it is not working. Computers are like that. Three things are certain. Death, taxes, and lost data. Guess which has occurred. So, we don't have a lot of control. Really, we don't. And the modern world, besides trying to control it, give you the illusion that you're in charge, also divides things so that we have time for retreat or church or whatever our sacred life is. And then we have business hours, right? And then we have time for family and time for sex and time for service. And we kind of have all these things in their little 
compartments as if they were somehow separate. But the more that they're kept separate in some way, the more that we're kept separate in ourselves, from ourselves and from our life. And there's an incredible suffering that comes from this separation. In the society around it comes as racism and economic injustice and all the separation of one human being from another. And it can be the same in our inner life. I met a monk who was this Burmese kind of revolutionary, quite extraordinary man. In, uh, and he risked his life many times in the face of this horrible dictatorship that's been ruling, governing Burma for some decades now, um, to lead student revolts and, and try to get the spirit of the Buddha on the streets instead of just in the monasteries in the face of um, tremendous injustice and a kind of genocide of many of the tribal peoples in his country. And he finally escaped. They were going to put him in prison and execute him. And he was living on the Thai border in some refugee camps, trying to serve and help uh, the uh, community of exiles who were um, still um, the students who'd lived in the jungles and survived and survived the malaria. And he was really a very wise and wonderful being. And I went to visit him one time, and he was having a, he, I heard from a friend that he was having a really terrible time. And I went to see him, because he was so brave, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, you know, the situation in Burma is just terrible, and no one in the world is listening, and I've decided I'm going to sit here and pour gasoline on myself and immolate myself like those monks in Vietnam, and then maybe someone will listen. And while that's a kind of extraordinary thing to do. It seemed a little bit rash in my <laughs> book, particularly because he was so helpful in supporting and serving others. So I decided to talk to him about it and find out what had made him decide to do that. And as we went through the story for a while, it wasn't the story I expected. It turned out, actually, that living in this border village, he'd fallen in love with a young Thai woman who came to serve in the monastery. And he'd been a monk for he was in his late 40s for 20 or 30 years. And he didn't know what to do. He thought, if I disrobe, I, I don't know how I'll make a living, how I could have a family, who I would be, you know. But I don't know that I could live without her either. And so I looked at him and I said, you mean you survived the prisons and the, you know, <laughs> the malaria in the jungle and you faced the, you know, the military dictatorship and so forth, but falling in love with a woman and now you're ready to immolate yourself? You know? <laughs> Come on. I know it's bad, but... <laughs> Fortunately, he didn't, you know. But you can see how there are parts of our lives that we keep separate from other parts. And what the development of awareness asks of us is to embody our life as a whole. Not just an ideal, but to really bring it to how we eat and walk and live and move. And in some way it's easier to love a hundred people in your loving-kindness meditation than it is one person close up. You know. So what are the principles for extending this awareness and this sacred presence of mindfulness into our life? The first is that we need to understand that it's difficult, that life is hard, and that there's no exception 
to that born on the earth. In some way, everyone will experience the first noble truth of the Buddha, of loss or change or difficulty or illness or the sorrows that we carry because of the injustices that we see all the time in the newspapers and in the streets and the things of this human life. And because it's difficult, we are asked, required if you will, if we would awaken, to find the capacity of heart to face with courage this difficulty, a fearless and tender heart, is what Chogyam Trumpa called it, to discover that as our own true nature. And that this human realm is one of paradox, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, that there's beauty and struggle and that you can't avoid them both in this human realm. Anybody not had that? My good friend Richard Heckler, who is a psychologist and a martial artist and meditation teacher, did a, a series of long trainings for the U.S. Army Special Forces in meditation and body work and things like that. And some of his good friends wouldn't talk to him for years because he did this, because it seemed so politically incorrect. Um, um, but he felt like it was better to have conscious soldiers than unconscious ones. Um, some other people said that was an oxymoron, but um, I'm not sure of that. Anyway, he wrote a book about it. And one of the scenes is that he had these guys in the Special Forces do a one-month meditation retreat in these kind of barracks out in the woods. And he said, and I walk in the room, it's just getting to be nightfall, and here are 30 men sitting on Zafus in their fatigues with M16 rifles next to them on the floor. And I look at them, and I'm caught by a man who's sitting motionless, alive with presence, concentrated, deeply you know, breathing deeply, and my eye is caught by something else, the black t-shirt he's wearing that hugs his biceps and his big chest. The words printed over the skull and crossbones say 82nd Airborne Division, and underneath it reads, Death from Above. Something is wrong, I tell myself. People don't wear t-shirts like this at meditation retreats. But the person inside the t-shirt looks like someone at a meditation retreat, another voice says. I look back, Death from Above. The skull and crossbones glare at me. I have no mental file for what I see. Killing and meditation simply do not go together. And they don't, in a way. I think as one becomes more meditative and in an honorable way more sensitive, it becomes less and less possible to cause harm to others. But Eric Fromm put it this way, I believe that every man and woman represents humanity. We appear different as to intelligence, health, and talents, yet we are all one. We are saints and sinners, adults and children, and no one is anyone's superior or judge. We have all been crucified with Jesus and awakened with the Buddha. We have killed and robbed with Genghis Khan and Stalin, and today, our life gives us a choice of which of these we will follow. And we all know this, you know, we see it as so much a part of our own world, the street kids, the world hunger, our own struggles with money or to be free, 
And at the same time, the plentitude in our supermarkets, you know, and the abundance that's there around us. And somehow in the midst of this paradox, we need to find for ourselves a centeredness and integrity and authenticity in this strange human life that we have been born into. And from that, from that place of awareness and centeredness, to discover that we can act and that we can make a difference. But it has to be not as a reaction, but really from a place of wisdom, spaciousness. In meditation, one discovers that the heart or mind is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know this inner space of mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, tragedy, comedy, or nothing at all. All things can come and go through us without us being caught in reaction or resistance. This is the practice of freedom. It's from my friend Ajahn Sumedho. And so somehow in sitting in meditation, instead of running away from the world, we begin to find this centered place in us that can be in this beautiful and painful existence and bring our heart into it. As I said first, we need to understand that there's no escape from the first noble truth, that there is difficulty. And secondly, and the understanding comes that in the midst of it, we can set the compass of our heart, the inner compass of our heart, so that it directs how we will respond to this world. And that setting of the compass in the Buddhist tradition is called the awakening of the bodhisattva. That is the being who, no matter what happens on this earth, is committed to awakening and compassion to all around them, themselves included no matter what the circumstances. Even if the sun should arise in the West and the world be turned upside down, the Bodhisattva has only one direction, which is the response of compassion, of respect and connectedness, this freedom of the heart. There are vows that people take, formally Bodhisattva vows, or sometimes every time they sit and meditate. Sentient beings are numberless in form and vast throughout this universe. I vow to bring awakening to all beings. The dharmas are inexhaustible. I vow to master them all, these kind of vows. But it's important to not take them in a kind of self-centered way. Doesn't mean that we have to rush around the world and solve all its problems. You would probably make more problems by doing that. Instead, it means to listen inside to your own, to our own particular gifts and capacities and circumstances with mindfulness. And then to be present with the heart so that we can respond in a wise way with innocence and openness and willingness. 
One of my favorite bodhisattva stories, which I've written but I haven't told here for probably five years or so, is of this wonderful Indian sage, Vinoba Bhave. And Vinoba was the chief Dharma successor to Mahatma Gandhi after Gandhi was assassinated in the 1940s. The whole movement of, uh, um, that Gandhi had set up in India fell into great disarray and despair for several years. And then people began to realize that even though India won its independence, there was still a lot of very important work that needed to be done, the healing in that country. And so all the followers of Gandhi decided to get together and they went to Vinoba and asked him if he would meet with them too to make a new plan. And he said no. He didn't want to try and recreate what had died with Gandhi. But they begged him. They said, we have to keep the work going in some form. And he finally agreed. He said, all right, I'll come and join your conference. It was halfway across India. But only if you postpone it to give me enough time to walk there, which they did. So he set out from Bombay or wherever he had been to walk across India as Gandhi had. And what he did is he stopped in every village and stayed in the temples, sat under the tree in the center of the village, they have in the center of many villages, and just listened to people. He said, I want to learn what's going on so that maybe I'll know a little more how to respond. And part way across in Maharashtra, in a very poor village, people came and a whole group said, we're so hungry, we have not enough food and can't you do something? He said, well, when I get back to Delhi, maybe I will... He said, well, don't you have any land? Couldn't you grow some food? That was his first response. And they said, no, no, we're untouchables. We're not allowed to have land. We have never had any land. And he was very sad and he said, well, maybe when I get back to New Delhi, I'll talk to Nehru and we'll get the government to pass a land grant policy that gives land to the untouchable community. He went to sleep and he didn't sleep all night because he knew enough about government to know that even if the law was passed, by the time it went through the provinces and states and districts and village headmen and so forth, if there was any left at all for the people at the bottom of the chain, um, it would be a surprise. So he met with him in the morning and he said he was really <coughs> sorry He'd promised that, but he knew it wasn't the way, and he didn't know how to help them. And he just sat with them. And finally a man stood up, the richest man in the village, and he said, you know, I've loved Gandhi, and I respect your coming, and this new country that we've started. How much land do these people need? Vinoba said, let's see, there's... Ah, 16 families, 5 acres each, 80 acres. So the man said, I will give. And Vinoba said, no, no, we cannot take so quickly. You must go home and speak with your family, your wife, your children, who will inherit your lands and make sure it's okay. So he went back and returned, said, yes, they say it's all right. And so this man gave 80 acres of land to those families. Vinoba went to the next village. Again, a group of the poorest of the poor, and the cast of beggars, untouchables. We have no food, no way to grow food. And he told the story of the previous village and how inspired he'd been. Everyone sat and the man stood up and says, I will do this too for Gandhi, another rich man, landowner in the village. How many untouchable families we have? 
you know, 22, all right, I give 110 acres. And again, the same process, checking with his family. And by the time Vinoba got to the conference, he had collected 2,200 acres of land for families. And that began what was called the Bhutan Indian Land Reform Movement. And for the next 12 years, Vinoba Bhave and the people who followed and worked with him walked on foot through every province and every district and almost every village in India and collected by telling this story and speaking of justice 12 million acres of land which were given to the poorest families of India. And yet he said, I left for this meeting not knowing what I should do. Nair Baba speaks of it in simpler ways. The scope of service is not limited to great gestures, heroic acts, huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that brings courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, a glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart, is also service, although there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many such small things, and if these small things were ignored, life would be unbeautiful and unbearable. So the spirit of the Bodhisattva is to discover this capacity to meet the circumstances that come unknown to us, unbidden to us, again and again, with compassion. Traffic jams, family life, business meetings, politics. Remember the Kalu Rinpoche coming and visiting the Boston Aquarium, this old Tibetan Lama, and as he went around to, it's like Monterey, this huge aquarium, all these tanks of tropical fishes and sharks and things, and he would tap on the glass at each one, even though the sign said, do not touch the glass, you know. <laughs> He didn't read English. Oh, Mani Padme Hung, he would tap and do his mantra, look in there. Somebody asked him, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm trying to get the attention of the fishes inside so I can bless them that they too might be awakened. And that was his way of moving through the world. The spirit of the Bodhisattva is really very simple. It's simplicity itself. No formula for it. No one can tell you how you should lead your spiritual path because it's an uncharted stream and no one has lived your life before like you. There's no authority, whether you're in a monastery or in parenting, you know, or in medicine or driving, that can tell you exactly how to do it. Or marriage? Heavens no, right? Do not put false heads above your own, said one Zen master. Don't put all these ideas about how you're supposed to be. But stay with each step, step by step closely. And if we pay attention in each moment, this begins to affect all those around us. When you meet someone who pays attention, it's fantastic. People love to be paid attention to. Your children, your co-workers. Even your plants, you know, your pets. And we are all connected. 
I mean, it's not just some spiritual platitude. Do you know, somebody did the calculation, what the likelihood is that when you take a deep breath in, that you'll be breathing at least one molecule of Julius Caesar's dying breath? Do you know how likely that is? 99 breaths out of 100. That's how many molecules are in one breath that can spread out through the atmosphere. And it's the same atmosphere. We just recycle it. Here. You know? So it's not like we're disconnected. Here we are. And in each moment then, what we do and how we live ripples out and affects others. I remember being at a workshop at Esalen with Christina and Stanislav Grof, and this person did this deep, deep work about the abuse they'd suffered as a child and all this terrible pain and weeping and finally came to a place the first time in their life after some weeks of reconciliation or forgiveness in their heart. Somewhat. And they went home from the workshop and they said there in their mailbox, the day they got home, was a letter from this person that they had not spoken to in 20 years. And it said, somehow this week I've been thinking of you and I just need to let you know how much I've suffered because what I've done as well. And I want to ask, you know, some forgiveness from you, your apology, my apology. It's not the only time you've heard such a story. Somebody asked Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, one point we were all sitting together, why did the war happen to the Vietnamese people? They got bombed and it was so terrible. Did they, is there some kind of group karma? Did they do something terrible that mandated that they should have so many bombs dropped on them and such terrible karma? Why did it happen to them? And he sat very quietly, reflected for a few minutes, and then looked up really sadly and said, the Vietnam War didn't happen to the Vietnamese. It happened to all of us. It did, and it always does. So what we do, how we pay attention moment by moment, how we live, affects the life all around us. And it's not like you need to know a lot. The Bodhisattva just sets the course, the compass, compassion, presence. In my last few days, I've been in New York teaching. I got back late last night. And over these last few days of teaching, one man talked about how he'd been at a car accident. And he didn't know anything what to do, how to help people. He got out of his car. He was right there when this accident happened. And this person had been thrown out of their car and was really badly hurt. And... There was somebody who was trying to, kind of as a paramedic, help their body while the ambulance was coming. And he said, all I did was put their head in my lap and cradle their head. And then, you know, some weeks later I contacted this person. I wanted to see how they were. They were in the hospital. And the man whose head I held said, you know, before I really went completely out, he said, I remember someone holding my head and it made all the difference. Somebody was there. Another person who stood up and talked about her cancer, she said, my cancer has become my teacher. I would never have said this, but my cancer has become my guru. It's taught me more than almost anything else in these years in my life. 
or another person who told the story of a mother who had a Down syndrome child, was a devout Catholic and traveled the side when the child was young. They were traveling in Europe to take this young boy to Lourdes and maybe put some of that healing holy water to help. Maybe the boy would be more normal. And the mother brought her son there and prayed and prayed and then took him to where the water was and looked at him and was going to reach out to put the water on him and she couldn't do it. She started to weep and she said, if I do it, you know, it's because I don't love you as you are. And really what I guess I most need to learn is just to love you as you are. And she never put the water on him and took him away. It's such a mystery just to be a human being with the sufferings and the beauty and the love that we have. You know, I like to read these children's letters to God. Their little second grade handwriting. Dear God, are you real? Some people don't believe it. If you are, you better do something quick. Harriet. (laughs) Dear God, I wrote you before, do you remember? Well, I did what I promised, but you did not send me the pony yet. What about it? (laughs) Lewis. Dear God, what is it like when you die? Nobody will tell me. I just want to know. I don't want to do it yet. (laughs) Your friend, Mike. Dear God, do you get your angels to do all the work? Mommy says we are her angels and then we have to do everything she asks. (laughs) This friend and teacher that I admire greatly, a kind of explorer of the mind, um, decided one time because he wanted to know about these things intellectually as well as in his meditation, to read the Encyclopedia of World Religions. All these volumes about different religions, Zoroastrianism at that one end, you know, and um, uh, starting with the A's, let's see, what would that be? Uh, Atheism, somebody said, right. (laughs) And going through the Basques and the Mayans and the Sumerians and the Vajrayana Buddhists and the Balinese and all those. And each one was a system that millions of people believed over hundreds of years. Teachings of good and evil and the cosmology each one had, explaining the world. And I asked, well, what did you learn at the end? And he said, what I felt by the end was how all these were simply words, concepts that we human beings had placed as a template on top of this great mystery of life, to explain it to ourselves for a time, to help us in some way, to guide us at best, but that behind all these different stories was what was really true, and that is this great mystery. Read you a poem from James Wright. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds from the grass and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They've come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me and our apples. We step over the fence into the pasture where they've been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely, 
can hardly contain their happiness that we've come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There's no loneliness like this of the meadows. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slender one in my arms, for she's walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She's black and white and her mane falls wild on her forehead, and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. We live in this place of mystery every day, all around us. And what the task, if you will, after finding some centeredness of awareness and freedom in the heart is simply to move in that mystery, not by grasping it or making it or changing it, but maybe by giving our blessings to it by offering our blessings. Yeats writes, My fiftieth year had come and gone. I sat a solitary man in a crowded London shop, an open book and empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and twenty minutes more or less it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. To just know that we are blessed, just to be alive, to breathe, to walk, to see, to touch one another. And to be a bodhisattva, or to choose that way, is a very unique and individual thing. There's no one that has ever on the face of this earth been like you before. Five billion, six billion people now, not one of them is exactly like you. It's amazing. Singular and unique and completely different than any other being. Isn't that fantastic? Creation is amazing that it can do that. And in the Buddhist tradition, there are a thousand images of bodhisattvas. There's the spiritual warriors and the spiritual midwives. There's Anattapindika, who is this wealthy, merchant, businessman, who built or created the great monasteries for the Buddha, and was really loved by everyone as a businessman, Bodhisattva. Or Ubakin, the teacher of many of us um, through his Dharma disciple, Goenka, in India. He was a Burmese master, a layman who not only had a meditation center, but also was the cabinet officer and minister in the Burmese government. And he was so successful, first he was the minister of the treasury and minister of finance. And then they said, would you mind doing transportation? He had that portfolio. By the time he was done, he had four ministry portfolios and he had them all come in and sit in meditation first during the day. You can imagine this in Washington, right? And center themselves and then they would do the work of the government. So that's a kind of a bodhisattva. Their grandmother bodhisattvas, Deepama, this teacher, that I studied with, who was both very, very brave and kind of remarkable yogi, and also very sweet and kind and tender, 
But underneath the tenderness was kind of a steel. You know how grandmothers can be. Once in the Andes, the mountain people invaded the lowlanders, and as part of their plundering, they kidnapped a baby of one of the lowlander families, took it up with them into the mountains. The lowlanders didn't know how to climb the mountains. They didn't know the trails, how to track them in the steep terrain. Even so, they sent out their best party of fighting men to climb the mountain and bring the baby home. The men tried first one method of climbing and then another, one trail and another, but after several days of effort, they'd only managed to climb a few thousand feet of these vast mountains. Feeling helpless, they decided the cause was lost and prepared to return home. As they packed their gear for the descent, they saw the baby's mother walking toward them. They saw she was coming down the mountain, that they hadn't figured out how to climb, and that she had the baby strapped to her back. How could this be? One man greeted her, said, We couldn't climb this mountain. How could you do it when we, the strongest and most able men in the village, couldn't do it? She shrugged her shoulders and said, It wasn't your baby. <laughs> Grandmother bodhisattvas, mother bodhisattvas, monks and yogis, some who spend a lifetime in a cave praying for the well-being of others, others who come out and do their work as service, all forms. Vimla Kirti, who's the great bodhisattva, who it says used to make himself sick so he could teach the doctors. Uh, and then he would go into the bars and drink and teach the people, the alcoholics, right? Oh, and then he went into the stock market, day trading to teach the traders. This Zen master I know, who doesn't sit so much in his zendo, but goes out and trains people on the streets, and trains people, you know, who are doing activist work, how to center themselves in the midst of it. There's so many ways. A friend of mine who was involved in starting the Plain Tree Hospitals, which is a whole different model of how to, how to work with the healing of patients. You're in a modern medical center, but you'd never know it, for the Plain Tree Hospital does not look like the ordinary one. Classical music plays in the background, Patient wears their, patients wear their own robes, pajamas, sleep on flowered sheets, are encouraged to sleep in as long as they like without being disturbed. There's no nurse's station. It's been replaced by a convenient study area where patients are encouraged to read their own charts and write in them as well. There are no visiting hours. Friends and family are welcome at any time convenient for the patients. Family members cook for their loved ones in special kitchens provided. Other family members are trained to serve as active caregivers. Once patients get a taste of the Plain Tree Hospital, they simply won't permit themselves to be admitted anywhere else if they can help it. So obvious, isn't it? It seems so obvious. So all these styles. It's said in Zen there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. Sometimes if you've swept too much and you kind of get ah, choked up with all the dusk of the tasks of the world, you need to sit. Maybe take a shower first and then sit and kind of 
find that place in the heart again. And then after you've sat, you get up and sweep the garden again. Anybody ever hear of Kathy Sneed? She's the person who started the um, prison garden project in San Francisco, for the San Francisco prison. You know, all these people who've been, many of them really thrown away by society, who were born into poverty where there wasn't any opportunity and the main opportunity was to go to prison, frankly, you know. And so she couldn't stand to see it, the waste of the souls. So she went to the prison, which used to have a big farm, and somehow collected from volunteers and people around in the community enough tools and fertilizers and seeds and started a garden project and gave people plots to grow. And the guards in the prison said it changed people's lives to have a place to care for and something that mattered, that responded to their care. In fact, she was so successful that unfortunately, after a while, what happened is that as people got out of the jail or the prison, they missed their garden a lot, and so they would commit small crimes and <laughs> break parole and stuff to get back to their garden. It's true. That's when she realized she had to start the um, uh, ex-prison garden project, the neighborhood prison garden project as well. So you begin to hear the different forms and spirit of mindfulness in action, of the wisdom of the bodhisattva. As Meister Eckhart said, the outward work will never be puny if the inward work is great. And when we do the inner work of the heart, then it gives us this spaciousness, this freedom, this sense of the capacity in the midst of all the changes of life, to bear witness to it, to open to it, and to love in its midst. What matters is not some form of imitation, you know, something that you're trying to do like someone else, but bringing your own particular beauty to what you do. One Jungian, Robert Johnson, said, Curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their own shadow even more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. To draw the skeletons out of the closet is relatively easy, but to own the gold that is in the shadow is terrifying. It's more disrupting to find out you have a profound nobility of character than to feel that you are a bum. Of course, you are probably both. <laughs> what to say? You know, the forces of greed, hatred, prejudice, delusion are vast in this world and they cause tremendous difficulty for us as humans and for what we touch. And when we come to sit in meditation, we are invited to face those directly in ourselves, our angers, our fears, our delusion, and find in that this freedom of heart that Buddha speaks of. And then we get up and extend that to the world. That's what makes a bodhisattva. You are all bodhisattvas, like it or not. And if you don't think you are, it's too late.
I remember with my teacher Nisargadat Maharaj, this wonderful old master in Bombay. One day a young man came in to where he was kind of teaching, asked just a question or two, and then left the room and never came back. Oh, a week or two later somebody said, you know, remember that guy who came in last week, asked a couple questions and disappeared? What will happen to him? Because he didn't seem to sound like he was going to pursue it, he didn't stay with you as a master or something like that. Is there any hope for some, someone like that? And the Sargadot laughed. He said, it's too late. He said, it's too late. You see, just the fact that he came into this room and began to ask the questions of, who am I really? What is this I've been born into? What is this life? Even if he asks just one question, it means that place in him that knows who he really is has begun to wake up, and there's nothing that can stop it. It is too late. <laughs> and it's too late for you as well. Suzuki Roshi puts it this way. He said, Buddha's wisdom is transmitted from warm hand to warm hand. It's not something theoretical. It's one moment after another. And so this is the other side of that contemplative teaching that we spoke of last week. This is the mindfulness of setting the heart's compass and moving step by step. It's like Braille. Nobody knows what will happen next moment, next step, next day. And it's a wonderful way to live. Beside which it's too late. You've already started. What are you going to do? Go back and cultivate more greed and hatred and delusion? You can't do it, can you, once you've seen it. A last poem. A new poem someone gave me this evening from Mary Oliver. This morning, two birds fell down the side of the maple tree like a tuft of fire, a wheel of fire, a love knot. Out of control as they plunged through the air, pressed against each other. And I thought how I meant to live a quiet life, how I meant to live a life of mildness and meditation, tapping the careful words against each other. And I thought as though I were suddenly spinning like a bar of silver, as though I had shaken my arms and lo, they were wings of the Buddha. When he rose from his green garden, when he rose in his powerful body, when he turned to the long dusty road without end, when he covered his hair with ribbons and the petals of flowers, when he opened his hands to the world. So let's sit for a minute before you go out and open your hands to the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.